This hour, we enter what feels like a hidden realm of American religious history, the spiritual legacy of Sitting Bull. He was a leader, medicine man, and sun dancer of the Lakota, a vast linguistic group within the Sioux Nation that resided across the northern plains. After his followers were attacked and defeated General Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn, the American government and press followed Sitting Bull as public enemy number one. But for many of his people, Sitting Bull's resistance to federal appropriation of sacred lands reflected humility towards the land and compassion towards his people. His death in December 1890 is remembered as his ultimate moment of sacrifice. We'll explore Sitting Bull's spiritual legacy as a force for identity and healing among the living. Reimagining Sitting Bull, Tatanka Iotake. I'm Krista Tippett. This is On Being from APM American Public Media. Tatanka Iotake was born in or around the year 1831. This, his great-grandson Ernie Lapointe has written, is when the Bad Bow Band of the Honkpapa tribe of the Tiatunwa Lakota Nation was camped on the banks of the Elk River, now known as the Yellowstone River in Montana. Tiatunwa means looking for a home site. The whites mispronounced their name and called them Teton. From its very beginning, it seems, the story of Sitting Bull, like the whole drama of the American frontier, is in fact many competing stories. There was ultimately, to be sure, violence all around. But it is stunning to discover how recently layers of the Lakota experience of all of this could be openly probed and expressed. U.S. officials deemed Native customs barbarous and demoralizing and passed the Indian Offenses Act of 1883. Not until 1978 did the American Indian Religious Freedom Act guarantee the right of the Lakota and other tribes to perform their sacred rituals and ceremonies. And these are at the very essence of Sitting Bull's legacy. Later in this hour, I'll speak with Cedric Goodhouse from the Standing Rock Reservation, and we'll hear how songs kept different memories and meanings alive— this song, for example, that Sitting Bull sang to his followers near the end of his life at a moment that history books call the surrender of Fort Buford. Our story says it was an exchange of lifestyle. People were starving. He chose that the better would be for them to have food and shelter. So he, in turn, took his rifle, he gave it to his son, his son gave it to Colonel Buford or whatever his name was. And he's the one that called it a surrender. But it wasn't a surrender. It was an exchange of lifestyle. You're going to give this lifestyle to my son, not to me. Surrender was not in Sitting Bull's vocabulary. He never signed treaties with the U.S. government, which he believed could not be trusted, not even a treaty of 1868 that decreed the Black Hills of South Dakota to be territory of the Lakota. Then gold was discovered in those hills, shining dust in Sitting Bull's vocabulary. And after trying and failing to renegotiate, the U.S. military sought and failed to force the matter at Little Bighorn in 1876. 
the basic American cultural sense of Sitting Bull resides in phrases like the fighting Sioux and was encapsulated in the first line of a classic and ostensibly sympathetic mid-20th century biography by Stanley Vestal. He wrote, Sitting Bull came of a family of fighters. Contrast this with corollary language in a film about his great-grandfather by Ernie LaPointe, that Sitting Bull came of a strong and spiritual family, of a strong and spiritual people. I traveled to Ernie LaPointe's home in South Dakota in 2009 to hear more. He was born in 1948 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Now he lives in a house in the Black Hills. We settled in for conversations surrounded by his pipe or chinupa and other sacred objects. Most of the historical record of Sitting Bull has been written by non-Lakota. Most of Ernie LaPointe's knowledge came through oral history passed on by his mother through her mother, Standing Holy, who was Sitting Bull's daughter. They had the visionaries, you know, he was one. And when he was young, they called him Hunkeshni. Hunkeshni is, you know, kind of a slow person, you know. He, he didn't really act right away. But what they didn't understand at the time was he always analyzed things before right. he did it. And he devoted his whole existence to the sacred way of life, mm-hmm. of the Lakota. And by the time he was a teenager... He already had the qualities and understanding of many things that grown men were seeking for the rest of their life, trying to understand. He already understood and lived it. So this was mm-hmm. one of the... What do you think of when you say that? What kinds of things? The generosity, the compassion, the fortitude of, of his courage. He didn't do things for the, for the art of glory or, or, or boasting his accomplishments. And that's why if you see his photographs, I always see him with, with just two feathers, one up and one kind of slightly to the right. Right. That's dyed red. And, you know, he, he could have had a headdress that had a trailer all the way to the ground hmm. for all the coups that he accounted. But he was a humble man. Did you grow up in this Lakota way of life that was also his world? In the beginning, as far as back I can remember, when I was told these stories, I was told these stories behind closed doors because we could not burn sage. We could not have this, you know, these items here like this because if he did, the federal government would, you know, arrest him. When you were a child? When I was a child growing up, I'd see this. We couldn't sing our songs, you know, our sacred songs. You know, we had powwow songs, but Mm -hmm. as far as uh, performing sacred ceremonies, we couldn't do them. We couldn't practice our religion until in the 80s right. when, when they finally signed it into law that we could do this, you know, where I can have my pipe sitting here like this. And I'm not a medicine man or a spiritual leader. I'm just a, a person who has a, a, a chanupa that I walk with it, you know, try to walk with it in a good way to understand the, the way my great-grandfather walked with his. You know, um, I was reading somewhere that in in Lakota there are sounds, drumming and singing that that builds body memory. And that if the elders sang for you, this becomes part of your body memory. That it's almost something that you almost genetically pass down. I wondered if also that oral history feels that way, and that you carry it forward physically, almost. Well, basically, the oral histories—that's the survival of our culture. This is how we. We survived this long. This is how I lived this long. 
from the stories. And, and you're, you're right, it's kind of like embedded within your, your soul or in your spirit. And it seemed like you already know when, when these stories are being told to you. But the, the difference between what we're talking right now in this language, I was told these stories in my Lakota language. Mm. And the meanings go deeper. When you tell these stories about compassion, generosity, and fortitude, and all the, the, the qualities of a person you're speaking about, then you, you, you try to show through example what you mean, how you exhibited yourself. And, and those are the qualities that you stress as right. qualities of the character right. of Sitting Bull. Um, and again, that's a contrast to this image of him as this warrior um, alone. You talk about his compassion and his fortitude of spirit. And what I always he- hear coming through is that, that he was always seeking wisdom and not, not merely victory or power in that sense. Um, right. What do you think of in terms of stories that you know about him that you cherish that, that demonstrate that character? Well, you know, there was my mother told me the story when he was a young boy. You know, because in our culture, you always take your son to to your brother to have him raised because the authority figure is a little different. And when he uh, first went on his buffalo hunt, this is this was one of the ones that really, as a kid his age, and she was telling me this, and I had no idea how what I would have did when I was six years, seven years old. Of when his first hunt, he went in there and he he, he killed the buffalo. He's a big buffalo bull. And his uncle Fawn and said, why didn't you take the cow that was closer to the edge? Because a buffalo spook that could run the horse down. And, and the young boy said, yeah, I've seen a cow. He said, but I've seen his little calf. Hmm. He said, if I kill the cow, he says, that little calf will sure perish too. So he said, I went after this big buffalo. Ernie LaPointe and other Lakota find this early character displayed in pivotal moments of Sitting Bull's life as an adult, some of the same moments, in fact, that also made him controversial among his people and beyond them. For example, Sitting Bull did not actually fight in the Battle of Little Bighorn. He took care of the women and children. White journalists and politicians branded him a coward for this, Lakota tradition saw staying with the non-combatants as proper conduct for a chief of his age. And though Sitting Bull foresaw that improbable Lakota victory over Custer in a vision, he had a companion vision that disaster would befall his people if they responded to that success with any looting or desecration of enemy bodies. Some did, and generations of tragedy did follow that victory. Similarly, what outsiders saw as Sitting Bull's power play for the Black Hills grew from his sense of those hills as a sacred inheritance, which could only be owned or desecrated by anyone at their peril. You know, even even from outer space, they took pictures of the Black Hills and it looked like a human heart. Really? They said it's the heart of the, the Turtle Island. We call this the Turtle Island because of it's not the America or it's not the North American continent or anything. It's the Turtle Island to us. So, you know, the the heart of this country is just Black Hills. That's why it's sacred to us. Hmm. You know, a lot of these stories, they're not fairy tales, but they're the stories of, of our creation and, and what happened, you know, to our people and how things happen. And, and 
you know, it's just like uh, stories from Europe, you know, about the, the Hansel and Gretel or the, the wolf and the three little pigs thing stories, you know, kind of basically like that. But ours are, are telling you a story about why, hmm. the do's and don'ts and, and what we do. And, and a lot of these things are shown to us through these stories or told to us through these stories of, of you know, how, how we evolved and how we survived and how we are still surviving and how we should be as people to honor and respect the earth and all living things on it. I like an ancient Roman definition of myth that a myth is not about something that never happened, but about something that happens over and over and over again. Right. There's a concept in, in our culture that we have these instruments here, the, the, the pipes, is I was wondering about the Americans, you know, well, not just the Americans, but the world, that they live in history. They're always studying history. What happened, you know, 100 years ago or what happened 10 years ago or what happened last year or 10 years ago, whatever. And, you know, they always got it in these books. And, you know, and I asked this question to an anthropologist in Notre Dame, and I said, in, in Eastern Michigan University, you know, I had a lecture with them. And I asked them, I said, what would you do if all your books, your rules, regulations, policies, guidelines, and history books are gone all of a sudden? How are you going to function for tomorrow? Well, you know, they give me this blank look. I says, I feel this pipe. I sing my songs. And I ask the creator, help me. What can I do for tomorrow? How am I going to make it through tomorrow? Because it's the unknown. So we have to ask the guidance of the spirits with this pipe. Say, help me. With the song I sing, with the prayers I offer, and the smoke that I send. And if you really have faith and belief in this, things do happen. Things that are almost impossible in your mind in the beginning come together eventually. I interviewed Sitting Bull's great-grandson, Ernie LaPointe, from high in the Black Hills, close to Deadwood, South Dakota, not far from Mount Rushmore. Watch and listen to our entire two-hour conversation at onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, reimagining Sitting Bull, Tatunga Iotake. We're exploring the spiritual character of this Lakota Sioux leader, a memory that has been lost in American history that recalls him principally as a warrior. As Ernie LaPointe has been evoking, the Lakota spiritual sensibility finds expression in story and song more than text and teaching. And its essential element is ceremony. As my producers and I spoke with a number of Lakota and others as we created this program, we encountered their desire to distance themselves from popularized forms of what is branded Native American spirituality. But delving into Sitting Bull's spiritual legacy among his people does become a kind of introduction to ceremonies like the Vision Quest and the Sundance with which he is closely associated. 
See, most history books that are written about my grandfather was said that he was a chief or medicine man, right. which he was, both. But through ceremony, I was informed that he would like to be recognized as a sun dancer. The sun dance is about the survival of a culture, and you're, you're doing this for the people. You don't do it for yourself. You're doing this for the people. You give your blood, sweat, tears, and you give all your energy. There are physical so, piercings right. that are involved in it. And everything you do out there is for the for survival of the people, survival of the food sources, which is the four-legged, the buffalo, the deer, the antelope, whatever. And they say when, you, when you're ready to do this, to commit to the Sundance, you should be able to uh, understand or, or to get rid of all the, the wild oats or however you want to say, hmm. understand you know, the wildness, the craziness and whatever. When you reach that certain plateau, they say you're usually around 30 years old. So you have to have guys. a level of maturity. Right. Mm-hmm. And you start to understand what your life here is about. And uh, with me, I didn't reach that maturity until I was in my 40s. I turned 41, I think, when I first Sundance. So, you know, it took me 40 years. I had to go through the trials, tribulations, mistakes, my own merits in my life, and my own understandings of the many things before I turned my life to my culture again. Mm. And a lot of it, most of my, my years were we're going through post-traumatic stress disorder from Vietnam, right. you know, flashbacks and, and all these nightmares I was having. And, and I was trying to self-medicate myself through alcohol and drugs and all this, you know. But I've, eventually I turned my life back around to my culture to understand why I'm having these things. And through ceremony, they tell me it's not a mental thing, as the VA is trying to tell me. Hmm. It's a spiritual wounding. And we had a way to protect ourselves, and we didn't do that. So that's when my understanding just started coming back. As you were saying, it's in my, it's in, it was in my genes or DNA. Mm-hmm. I already knew. What do you mean when you say we had a way to protect ourselves and we didn't do that? See, this is where in the movies, you know, you, you turn on the old Western channel here, and you see Charlton Heston or somebody sitting there going, oh, they got their war, the Sioux have their war paint on, okay? Right. You know, it's not war paint. It's a protection. And every individual who goes on to a, a ceremony, who does a purification ceremony or whatever, you you go through a, a process, I guess you might say, through either through purification or through a humbleccia, which is, I guess, the closest you could say is a vision quest. And at that certain time, they show you some colors in how to apply on yourself. So if you if you see most guys out there, you know, and back in the time when Sitting Bull was around, you see these guys with the certain paint markings on their faces and their bodies. It's not war paint. It's, it's a protection for your spirit. Hmm. And they tell us that we have a body, we have a mind, we have a heart, and we have a spirit. These four things make up your who you are. And your body... Your mind and your heart understands life, death, and tragic events. But your spirit is the vulnerable part. And when you said that just a minute ago, did you also mean that you realized that you'd gone through some very hard parts of your life without right. without availing yourself of that protection and that knowledge? Right. That's, mm-hmm. You know, with myself, it's a difficult life. And I understand my great-grandfather's 
frustrations with the government, and he's trying to live with the earth and get the people to understand that they should understand his people's way of living with the earth. Whereas with me, it's it's trying to survive, you know, and and then individuals like yourself and others around the world asking me these questions about my spiritual way. And I think the tide is starting to turn a little mm. bit to people understand how we survived this long as, as natives. Right. And we had to have faith. We had to have conviction. We had to understand that eventually there's going to be a time when the earth is going to be the, the victor in all this, not us. And you and your family have had a pretty remarkable few years. Um, as the Smithsonian has identified you as the the closest living blood kin to Sitting right. Bull. The, the, the lineal descendants. The lineal descendants. Um, from what I read of your accounts and have heard of your accounts of it, it, it it's almost like... Um, it's almost like a reconciliation with your grand, great-grandfather's spirit or sort of bringing his journey full circle in a sense. And you had a physical manifestation of that. You had the repatriation right. of his leggings and some of his hair. And I, I wonder if you would tell me, you know, about that and what that's meant to you. Well, I think the, well, when we, we first seen it, I didn't really believe that anybody would do anything like this because we never knew that had taken a lock of his hair or his leggings. Was it the U.S. And military who took the? It was the, the post-surgeon at Fort Yates in 1890 who did that. His name was Diebel, and he took them as souvenirs. In 1896, he donated them. He put them on loan to the Smithsonian Institute, but he had no descendants, so the Smithsonian had them all the mirrors. And then they, the government came up with NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Repatriation and Protection Act. And when they came out with that, then they had to return all religious items, body parts and all that, back to the descendants or to the tribes. So that's when they started doing So they research. had to find you. They right. had to determine that you were the person to receive this. Right. Repatriation happened. It was, I think, it was December seventh, two thousand and seven. We were at Washington, and the only thing that really touched me was what my wife said. They asked, "They said, what did you? How do you feel? You know, like you just did." And she said, "When we walked out of the Smithsonian Institute, she says, my grandfather's going home with us." And that was more than enough for me to say, well, now he's away from this place. You know, he's home with us now. So December 15th, 2000, we did a ceremony here with the hair and the leggings. And Can you tell me I about that in. ceremony? What, what? Well, we, we, I brought in my, my friend. He's a medicine man. And he's a Sundance leader. And I asked him if he could do this, and he, he was all nervous, you know. Mm. He said, I've never done this before. And I said, i seen you. I said, I have a ceremony. He said, no. I never actually brought Sitting Bull's spirit into a ceremony like this, invite him. So I told him, I said, well, I said, you're humble. I said, I'm humble. I said, I think we can make it through this. So we did, and the spirit of Sitting Bull was here, and he acknowledged that the hair and the leggings were his. And I asked him, I didn't know what to do with them. 
what should I do with these items, right? Well, he told us to put them leggings away, you know, for safekeeping. You know, they're not can be put in a museum or for show because they've been sitting at the Smithsonian. And the hair, he said, he needed to, we had to burn it because it was his. Well, during this, before this time, a DNA, ancient DNA specialist from Denmark, Copenhagen University was here. He wanted to know if he could do a DNA on the hair. And we said, well, we'll have to, I can't, I can't give you permission. I said, it's not my hair. <laughs> so we asked and the spirits give him so much of it, but two, three inches of it, cut off the end, he says. And, and you know, he kind of said, I know who I am and I know my grandchildren are here. But, you know, this is a scientific thing, you know, the world. They wanted to know, so he said he allowed him to. So he's having a heck of a time with it, though, because the Smithsonian coated the hair with uh, cyanide. That's how they preserve it. It looked just like it was shiny and like this. Like it had just been cut off. Mm -hmm. And why did you have to burn? Why did the rest of it need to be burned in the ceremony? Because it was his. It was his, and it didn't belong to me or nobody else. And and in a spiritual way, it should be buried. But it was almost like your burial. These, right. All the, this right. century, and more. more he later. says, "No, it, it goes back." And and what really amazed me was, you know, we burned the hair, and and uh, my wife and I was gonna. I says, "Where are we gonna put this now?" Well, we established. We we know where he was, where his area, where he was born south of Miles City, Montana, about maybe 10 or 15, maybe 20 miles. It's a little state park there. It's a beautiful place. And so we went out there, and Sonia and I decided maybe we should take the ashes and just dump it out there. So we went. It was in July, I guess, when in the summer. And we pulled in, and we stopped at the park, and we started walking. And I was carrying this little uh, container with the ashes, and I happened to look down, and there's laid this rattlesnake. It was probably three, four, maybe five feet long. It has rattles about that long on it. It was laying there, and my wife almost stepped on its head, and it was probably about an inch or two from its head. And she yelled, and I yelled, and we jumped, and the snake, I said, is it dead? Because it wasn't moving. But you could see its tongue every now and then come out. So we went on, and I did a ceremony out there, sang a song or two, and then I you know, offered tobacco and through the ashes out there in the field, along the creek there. This year we're talking about it, you know, to my friend, the medicine man. You know, he said, Sitting Bull was our most humbling, the most knowledgeable spiritual man of his time. He said, those of us who practice, who live our religion, our, our spiritual way, he says, we haven't even scratched the surface of what he knew and what he did, what the sacrifices he did for his people, the compassion, the generosity he had for his people. He said he would he would die for his people. And he said, not only the people, he said, but for every living thing on this earth we're talking about, Mother Earth and all the living things on this earth, he prayed for their uh, survival at the Sundance. And he says, when you were walking through there, he says, and that snake knew, that ashes you had was the ashes of his hair. So that even that snake humbled himself and laid still. And he said, this is example of what the animals and the trees and the rivers and everything hold respect for this man. And on, on my term, 
I was looking at it and I said, man, he left me some deep footprints to walk in, you know? And it's amazing that I really have to tell this stories in a humble way, you know, his story, because I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, say something that wouldn't wouldn't sit right with him. <laughs> <laughs> because you'd know about it. Yeah, I would know about it. Yeah, you would you would let me know. The Smithsonian still holds a set of 22 pictographs drawn by Sitting Bull himself in 1882 while he was a prisoner at Fort Randall in South Dakota. These autobiographical drawings depict his exploits as a warrior. They also give a sense of the man as an artist. He drew himself and other people in a rather angular, two-dimensional form, but his mounts or horses with astonishing detail. To learn more, go to our website and watch a narrated slideshow with Candace Green, an ethnologist from the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History. Her expertise on Sitting Bull's watercolors teases out the subtle particulars of symbols and his signatures. And that's a unique information that he's providing about his own medicine, his own spiritual power that is found only in his drawings. It's not recorded elsewhere in information about him. And that was typical that men may not have spoke much about their medicine power. They displayed it visually in many ways, but not in words. See Sitting Bull's drawings and hear more of Candace Green and other commentary at onbeing.org. And while you're there, you can listen to my entire unedited interview with Ernie LaPointe in his home. Coming up, Cedric Goodhouse of the Standing Rock Reservation on Sitting Bull's legacy of healing, even in the place where he died at the hands of members of his own tribe. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, reimagining Sitting Bull, Tatunka Iotake. In American history books, Sitting Bull is remembered as the celebrity warrior who triumphed at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876. Among his people, he is remembered as a compassionate chief and spiritual leader. This is increasingly important in the present, it seems, as tribal healing of old wounds continues to happen on many levels. For Sitting Bull's legacy also embodies divisions that arose among the Lakota as part of their encounter with the Wasichu, or non-natives, as the western frontier was settled. Some Lakota signed treaties with federal authorities, seeing that as their best hope. Sitting Bull refused, and he and his followers were deemed hostiles. He led a nomadic existence after that, pursued by U.S. government agents, who also commanded a corps of Indian police and members of Sitting Bull's own family circles were implicated in his death. Ernie LaPointe, his great-grandson with whom I just spoke, has written that the moment the spirit left Tatunka Iotake's body, the spiritual untying of his relatives and extended family occurred, and it has continued that way for nearly 120 years. 
I also spoke with people in and around the Standing Rock Reservation in 2009 to understand how Sitting Bull's legacy lives and functions there. Cedric Goodhouse is a member of the same band of the Lakota as Sitting Bull, the Hunkpapa. He works as an addictions counselor and lives in Fort Yates on the North Dakota side of Standing Rock. It straddles both the Dakotas. Cedric Goodhouse came into a studio in Bismarck to speak with me, and he brought his family. In word and song, they evoke a collective memory of Sitting Bull as a leader of humility, passion, compassion, and sacrifice that formed the Lakota sense of self into the present. See, in his time, he, uh, Sitting Bull was, pe- people forget that he was a vision, uh, a visionary, and he was a man, man of visions. And our belief is that he knew his time was coming. You know, but he, there would be a time in the future where, where we would need to reach back into, into our history and grab those strengths to carry us, you know, in, in times that where, where there's going to be this, this social upheaval, you know, where, where, where the, the threads of society come unraveled, you know, that, that there, there'd be a time when we would need to have these types of strengths that would bring us. Right, you know that that would secure our our future, and those were some of those teachings. You know, so uh, some of our greatest tragedies when you when you look at how we view life in this circle, is we can turn those tragedies into strengths. So I think you're also saying that it wasn't even so much that people would talk about Sitting Bull, but that what he taught and modeled was is part of of kind of a sensibility of a way of living. Yeah, he, he was an example. Um, you know, the more faith you have, uh, the more confidence one has. And we got that through practicing ceremonies. Right, you know? right. And, and the greatest one right now is being able to have those visions and how we have them. There's a ceremony that's been gifted to us through the sacred pipe where, where we... We build our faith through that, and that's the the vision quest or the humblechia, you know. And is the vision quest as important for you in terms of Sitting Bull as um, the Sundance? Because I think other people emphasize um, his part in in the Sundance. You know, I I think that's really a good question because today, you know, we we see people making making a choice to enter the Sundance circle mm-hmm. without being spiritually guided. And you're spiritually guided by the the vision you received through through fasting and praying, I through, see. through the hum, through, through the vision quest, through the humblechia, where we practice, where Sitting Bull uh, lived, Sitting Bull's camp, uh, we we still practice that way. Once you go in, there's no more food, there's no more water. You're you're obligated to to fulfill that commitment. Plus, you're also obligated to tell us what brought you to that circle. You hmm. know, I'm 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 a part of what you call the Wakichus. It's kind of, it's kind of like a committee made up of about twelve of us, twelve men, that in, ensures the integrity of that ceremony. So again, you know, for many generations, I think Sitting Bull came down in American history as this kind of a military political leader, and it's very clear to me that he was very much a spiritual leader for his people and that that's his legacy. And if I ask you to explain, you know, what what that means for you, or, you know, is that even a term you would use? 
What, what language would you want people to hear around this? The reason why we know Sitting Bull the way we know Sitting Bull is because of all the non-Indian documentation that's been done on Sitting Bull. So a lot of a lot of opinions and 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 uh, beliefs and how how people have pattern and and whatever we derive from that is usually derived from all those writings uh, over the ages. But when you look at the people, when you actually go to his people, you you see Sitting Bull in in those people. And this leads me to, to his song. You know, his, his song says this. It, it, the words to his song says, My friends, he says, My friends, be strong because me, I am nothing. And But who you will see is sitting bull, is, is who you will see. So what he was saying in that is that he put everybody before him. So when if you come to the Grand River Valley there, and to where his people are at, uh, you you will find that that people will probably gift you with the best they have, you know, and, and make you feel the most comfortable and at ease uh, doing your visit, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 you will find that a lot of them have do that. They, they they put other things from children to the elderly to everything else first, you know. So you see that in people. Uh, I, I believe the, there's been a, a term, a phrase that's been coined now. They call it servant leadership, you know. Yes. So that spirit is working yet today in in his teachings. When you say Sitting Bull's song, does that mean this was a song that he sang? No. Okay. The people sang for him. Okay. In his lifetime or after? Yeah. In his lifetime. Okay. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna ask my son to sing that song. Okay. He's got we a, heard that your son has a beautiful yeah. voice. <laughs> well, that's that's how these things continue to live. have a ride on the Wounded Knee every year from December 15th to December 29th. Mm. They ride horseback down, you know, because after when City Bull was killed on the 15th of December, a lot of his people left, you know, and they all went towards Pine Ridge. They called Red Cloud Agency at the time and, and then Wounded Knee subsequently happened. But they were left in the dead of winter and over about a three to four day period. And some 40, some they say 50, 60, some hunkapapas were are down there in that mass grave of 300 and some, mostly women and children. Hmm. But we sing that in remembrance of him, honor him on, on December 15th. And then uh, that's part of the activities that go on that day. And then again, after we get down there on the 29th, sometimes we're there, sometimes other people are there. And sometimes that song is sung or... Or they sing other songs too as well. Our history is in our songs. (laughs) 
listen to Cedric Goodhouse's son and wife, Rick and Sissy, singing this and other songs and explaining their meanings. That's at onbeing.org. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett with On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, reimagining Sitting Bull, Tatanka Iotake. Sitting Bull died on December 15, 1890. Though there's never been perfect clarity about what happened, we know this. A famously zealous U.S. official, James McLaughlin, worked in tandem with the military to send a unit of Indian police to arrest Sitting Bull at the Standing Rock Reservation. In the struggle that ensued, Sitting Bull was killed. Cedric Goodhouse has been part of an initiative at Standing Rock in recent years to shape some of the ceremonies with which Sitting Bull was so closely associated as sources of healing. The man that had the vision, his name is Isaac Dog Eagle, and he is related, you know, you can you can follow his lineage and it'll it'll come to Silimbu mm-hmm. and it'll go beyond that too, you know. But it's uh uh he had the vision to one day go back out there and to have this this ceremony out there. And the Sundance, the the we wine uh when you when you interpret it into English language you you, you lose a lot. Yes, I and, I and, get and that, when yeah. you so the 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 Sundance ceremony is is so that the people may live. That's that's why you do this ceremony, hmm. sacrifice so that the people may live. Uh, but prior to having this out there on on where Sitimbu was killed, they had to have a what they call a hunkayapi ceremony, of making a relative ceremony. So that's what they did. We we got together. And we asked all the people that were associated or had any involvement in that tragedy that occurred back in 1890, December 15th. And that means all the police, their their descendants and relatives and all the, even the McLaughlins. Really? You know, yeah. And so we so we offered them all to come. Mm. And and then all the people like Isaac and he, he asked all of us to, to bring food and to bring clothing to bring water, and we would make them relatives, you know, hmm. so that we can we can grow from that, you know, because it happened among our people, yes. you know. So that's what we did. We had this hunkayapi ceremony before we could proceed on. And this took place some, uh, I, I gauge it on my son's uh, uh, age. Hmm. My son is 24, and the first year we had it, my wife was carrying him. Okay. So, you know, it was 25 years ago that we had this, the first time that we had it out there. Uh, but it was through a, a vision that we would go back there and we would start this healing process uh, among our people. This is a song Sitting Bull sang to his followers at a moment that history books call the surrender of Fort Beaufort. Actually, it wasn't a surrender. You know, our story says it was an exchange of lifestyle. People were starving. He chose that the better would be for them to have food and shelter. And that morning, he walked around the camp and he sang a song. And it was him, Sidi Bull, telling his people how once we were fighters, and now, you know, that's, that's not going to be no more. Almost like a longing for not to forget this way. Ay, 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 
today is there's a lot of things that, that we're going through. You know, people are learn, uh, talking language. They're talking a lot of things. But uh, governmentally-wise, if you come to Standing Rock, even here in Bismarck, you know, you, you find things that are just are predominantly from that time. You see here in town, the Grant Marsh Bridge, we passed by Fort Lincoln, we passed by uh, Custer's House on Standing Rock. There's a town called McLaughlin. You know, it just it's just infested with that type of mindset yet. You know, there, there was a lot of things that we need to heal from and continue to. And it's it's happening. Bullhead, the people of Bullhead changed that name to Rock Creek. Uh. You know, how that area used to be known in our language, Rock Creek. And then the same way with uh, with Little Eagle. They, he, he was a policeman, but they changed that town's name to uh, Running Antelope to honor the chief at that time, uh. Running Antelope. So there, there's a lot of things that are that have changed since that, you know, and it's it's steadily, you know, and we're we're uh, continuing to pray, you know, continuing to to have the ceremony where we make relatives and continuing to pray so that our people may live. Cedric Goodhouse. closing, here is one final story from Sitting Bull's great-grandson, Ernie LaPointe, who has traveled and spoken across the world in recent years. This is another one that, that goes back to when he was his first Sundance, where he, in his, in his trance that he was in, he went to, through his life stages. And his teenage years, he was walking through this... Uh, prairie and he heard this voice calling for help so he went over the ridge and he seen this wolf laying there with two arrows in its side. Somebody shot the wolf and the wolf told him, he said, boy come here and help me he said. So he went and took the arrows out of his side and dressed the wounds stopped the bleeding and after he prayed for the wolf and stuff, the wolf finally got up and he started to walk away and as he walked away he turned back and he looked at the boy and he says he said, boy, he said, for helping me. He said, the nations will know you just by your name. And I guess he didn't realize that the world was going to know him just by his name. You know, example was, I was at Eastern Michigan University, and there was this guy, he had a, he's a professor, he was an Iranian guy. And he sent one of his students over, he went to talk to me, so I went over and told him, sure. So he came over, he was a really humble guy. And we're talking there, and he told me, he says, you know, he says, my home country of Iran, he says, you can go into the middle of the country. I mentioned Sitting Bull's name, and the people know who he is. He says, my people, he said, respect people who stand for their values and their beliefs, and they're murdered for it. And he said, he was murdered for his beliefs and his strengths and what he stood for. He said, he didn't give in. He says, that's an honorable man when you do that. So I always wonder, you know, that wolf really was was <laughs> predicted something to him that he didn't realize, I guess. I mean, I didn't, I understand now, but, you know, he probably didn't realize that the world in, in his 21st century is going to know who he is just by his name, you know.
Ernie LaPointe is the great-grandson of Sitting Bull. He's the author of Sitting Bull, His Life and Legacy. He lives in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Cedric and Rick Goodhouse live in Fort Yates, North Dakota, on the Standing Rock Reservation. Being.org, listen to these unedited conversations and watch my meeting and conversation with Ernie LaPointe at his home in the Black Hills. I made a ceremonial offering of tobacco as we entered his home. We did an unusual amount of historical research to prepare for this show, and we've documented it all on our website. Retrace our steps if you'd like and explore other voices who helped us piece together and verify a picture of Sitting Bull in his lifetime and in ours. One of them, Patrice Kunish, is a law professor at the University of South Dakota. She's also of Hunkpapa Lakota descent. One of her relatives was a translator and tracker for the U.S. official who ordered Sitting Bull's arrest. For Patrice Kunish, Sitting Bull's legacy is about cultural survival and, as she puts it, the endurance of family relationships. Find all this and much more at onbeing.org. There are also links and discussions on our Facebook page and through our Twitter feed, at beingtweets. This program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Susan Leem. Anne Breckbill is our web developer. Special thanks this week to Carol Barrett, David Bourne, Candace Green, Sonia LaPointe, Patrice Kunesh, Jerome Kills Small, Ron His Horse's Thunder, the Minnesota Historical Society, Donovan Sprague, Judy Whitebull, Mary Louise Defender Wilson, and Bill Yenny. Trent Gillis is our senior editor, and I'm Krista Tippett. On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. And the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. This program is made possible in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the NEH. Next time, what if we understood death as a developmental stage like adolescence or midlife? Dr. Ira Bayok is a leading figure in palliative care and hospice. From his place on this medical frontier, he reflects on dying not only as a time of suffering, but of learning, repair, and completion of our lives. Please join us. This is APM American Public Media.